What if churches here in the U.S. had a way of partnering with churches and communities of Christians around the world to break the cycle of poverty and see change that lasts for generations? And what if that way was by rethinking a strategy that these churches have already been using for nearly 100 years? This is the Missions Pastor Podcast. We believe that the local church has the message of hope that the world desperately needs to hear. And in every episode, we highlight churches, pastors, and ministries who are working to bring that hope to hard places. Welcome to this inaugural episode of the Missions Pastor Podcast. This show is presented by One Child. We are a global community of child champions that serves children in poverty so that they can discover hope and reach their God-given potential. I'm David. I'll be your host as we have some thought-provoking and encouraging conversations with local church leaders around the world who are bringing hope to hard places every day. Stay tuned to the end of the show for some more details about what you can expect on the Missions Pastor Podcast. But before that, we want to give you a glimpse into who we are here at One Child, and there's no better way to do that than to let you hear from the president of One Child, Dr. Scott Todd. Uh, Dr. Scott, as we affectionately call him, is passionate about serving children in poverty and helping them overcome adversity and experience a flourishing life. I asked Dr. Scott to define what hope really is and why it's so important. We're talking about the kind of hope that deserves to stand there between faith and love in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. We'll talk a lot about faith. We'll talk a lot about love and the four types of love. We, we don't talk as much about hope. And what does that really mean? Um, but at One Child, we have come to see that hope is the fuel that creates a better future. Hope is this ability to see that a better future is possible. And, and it's not just that. It's not just pie in the sky, wishful thinking, right? If, if I can imagine a better future, but I don't believe there's a way to get there, that's, that's actually not hope. That's just a fantasy. And that's not the same thing here. So hope is not just this belief that a better future is possible and this vision for it. It's also what we call wayfinding skills, the ability to find a path to get to that future so that it moves it out of fantasy into possibility. And it's because of that, that there's a potential thing I can do. There's an action I can take. If there's a way I can get there, then I can put a foot on that path and begin moving toward that better future. And that's why hope actually includes a third requirement. It's not just a vision for a better future and a way to get there. It's also the courage to try. Because here's the thing about hope. If you see a better future and there's a way to get there and it's not hard, well, you've already gone there. It's always hard. The road of hope is always hard. In fact, hope doesn't exist without a challenge. And that is why when we are in the hope construction business, helping kids to believe there is a better future possible for you, there is a way to get there, there also has to be a lot of courage to give it a try to keep moving. And when you got knocked down, you got to get back up and keep trying. This applies to everyone in the world, not just these kids in hard places. It applies to all of us, you and I today. We have to believe that possible better future. We have to see a way to get there and we have to know it's going to be hard. So it's going to take courage. Most of us uh, who imagine a better future and even see a path to get there, stay stuck. A lot of people <laughs> will stay stuck. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, maybe you're staying stuck right now. Yeah. Maybe you're like, well, I've always had a dream to start the bike shop. Maybe I've always wanted to write a book. Maybe I've always, whatever it is, there's belief of a, of a thing that fills you, a dream that fills you. Why are you stuck? Mm-hmm. Because you're afraid. You have fear. Fear that you won't have the money to do it. Fear that you'll fail at it. Fear that it'll go out of business. Fear that it won't sell. Fear whatever. The barrier on the path between you and your hoped for future is not the barrier that you're naming. It's not the thing you're labeling. The real barrier is your fear. And it's the same for kids. So for kids growing up in extremely hard circumstances, hard places, to believe a better future is possible and you look around and they see no examples of anyone who overcame, you know, everyone they know wound up in the same hard situation. For them to then go out and try and study hard and get a job and work hard and save a little bit of money and keep on keeping on, that takes courage. And that's what we do. We help kids discover hope amidst all their hard circumstances because hope drives that better future. Wow. That's good. So we talk a lot about hope. You mentioned, you know, the definition of hope and, and the different elements about hope. And, and as you did that, there's always for us at one child, it always comes back to the kids, to the children. So as you think about hope, the question that, that I know a lot of people are probably asking themselves is how does child development work like what we do here at one child how does that bring hope to kids and honestly does child development even work this world is broken this world has so many big problems and and whatever that massive challenge might look like however you would describe it whether you might look at global poverty or you might look at injustice and corruption or you might even look at the collapse of certain ideas you know the rise of moral relativism or you might look at uh frankly any of the major issues where there's a lot of issues right, <laughs> right. we know that absolutely none of them are going to get fixed overnight and I think as Christians, we have to just embrace that fact. We have to recognize the kinds of things that are broken, these big social issues and concerns that we have. It might upset us today. We might post on social media about it today. But you know what? It's not going to go away overnight. And if we're serious about advancing kingdom work, if we're serious about mission, if we're serious about positive social change, if we really want to demonstrate the love of God in this world, we have to take a generational approach to social change. Extreme poverty isn't going to go away overnight, but it can go away. And the way to do it is by recognizing the need for generational engagement, meaning you got to think 30 years. And if you're doing that, you're going to think about kids because the truth is what kids believe, what they grow up to value, what they make as normal in their life, how they live out their faith, whether or not they attend church, what they believe about the Bible, all of it. And what does that mean for how they work, their work ethic, all of it? It is formed from childhood through adolescence. That's why I believe that the most strategic thing you can do if you're trying to change this world for good is invest in kids. Help them thrive. Help them have opportunities. Help them see that God is a good and loving father. Help them believe things that are true. And scripture teaches us that if we invest those truths in them, they won't stray from it. And we have to trust God with that. So when I think about 
um, the value, the strategic importance of working with kids. It's with that long-term view. Yes, each child matters. Yes, you want each little one to thrive. And I care about that one with his name and his unique story. But I also look at it as a bigger picture strategy that, you know what? We need to engage the next generation and help them to grow and to learn and to build trusting relationships and to have a godly character and integrity and go on to be the solutions to the challenges this world faces. Right. Tying into that, there's, I opened this, this episode by saying that there is uh, a strategy that when we rethink it and, and change it just enough that it can break this cycle of poverty and see this lasting change for, for generations that you just talked about, Scott. So. That idea is child sponsorship and people are familiar with sponsorship and they've got lots of ideas. They'll think about compassion. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what I know a lot of pastors ask a lot of people within churches because they are familiar with this idea is does child sponsorship really have the impact that people think it should have? Um, or is it just, um, just a way for these organizations to raise funds? You know, child sponsorship has been around for a long time, right. almost a hundred years, believe it or not. And. Um, what happens in the sponsorship program can be very different from one organization to another. But here's what I know. I know that I have experienced meaningful relationships with kids that I've sponsored. My wife and I've, I have been sponsoring children for, uh, what, almost 30 years. I mean, uh, it's a long time. And I've had the opportunity to meet, personally meet, many of the children that we've sponsored. With one child, um, we have have had that happen over and over where we take somebody to meet their sponsored child. And those relationships um, are authentic. Okay? And that's the thing. So there are some sponsorship organizations where that individual child might not be receiving specific and meaningful benefit. It's a community development model. But there are other sponsorship organizations, including one child, where, yes, that specific sponsored child is receiving benefit, your letters, your prayers, all of those things are are real. And we just deeply believe in that. And we believe that if you invest in a relationship with a kid, if you pray for them, if you write them letters of encouragement, send them, maybe send them a scripture or something, affirm them, value them, try to reinforce the good values they're being taught locally, that you are playing an important role in encouraging them. Mm -hmm. You are a child champion to them. Mm -hmm. And they need that. They need that voice of encouragement and affirmation. And I've seen many cases where a kid who's received a letter, even a single letter, they cherish it. They put it in a little shoebox next to where they sleep. And they've, you can tell looking at it, it's been folded and unfolded a hundred times. Wow. And so we do believe that sponsorship is an excellent way to minister to individual children and that sponsorship can transform lives, not just that child's life, but maybe even your own. You mentioned Compassion International, and obviously you've got history with Compassion International, having served there for a very long time. And many of the leadership here at One Child have a history of working with Compassion International. And most of the people listening to this uh, episode of our podcast have probably heard of Compassion International, even if they haven't heard about One Child. So what 
are some of the similarities and the differences between Compassion International and One Child? You know, Compassion International and World Vision, these are really good organizations. And like One Child, um, they're focused on helping children thrive. Definitely. And, uh, you know, One Child began about the same time, actually, as both World Vision and Compassion. Uh, We're about 55 years old and have been, um, you know, through a lot of experiences. As you can imagine, the world's changed a lot over the last five decades. Uh, But we have stayed on mission, helping children thrive in the hardest places uh, around the world. But One Child is unique, uh, different from those other organizations in the fact that we're, uh, I like to think of us as a custom shop. We're very contextual. When we partner locally, we trust our local partner to know what's best to help that kid thrive, to build relationships around that child so that we understand their needs and individualize their experience. And really one of the biggest differences is how we describe ourselves as a global community of child champions. We really believe that local teachers, tutors, youth pastors, mentors, social workers, those people we call child champions, they're the key to helping children in poverty prevail to mm-hmm. overcome despite all the hardship around them and meet whatever those needs might be. So that's really our focus is that we serve those local champions so that kids can thrive. Um, over the years, the child sponsorship model has come under some scrutiny, um, especially over the last you know 10 years or so. What's right about the child sponsorship um, approach? Um, and what are some things that need to change going forward? Yeah, child sponsorship has been around for a long time. Most people uh, don't realize it, but it's almost a century. Um, it, it began after World War I, uh, caring for kids who'd been orphaned. Uh, in World War One, and um, so there's been multiple organizations and and the whole uh, sector, if you want to call it that, that field of organizations involved in child sponsorship. Obviously, they have been changing and adapting and evolving over all of those decades. One of the big things that happened was back in uh, the latter part of the 20th century, there were two schools of thought about child sponsorship. One was uh, a belief that the best way to help kids is to help their whole community. And so it became a community development approach funded by child sponsorship. And the other school of thought said, yeah, but the thing we're doing if we are sponsoring a child is we're committing to help that individual child. And so those organizations focused on each sponsored child's outcomes. Uh, that's a huge difference when you look mm-hmm. at the program side. Um, now, the sponsor side, it may feel pretty much the same. You're going to get a right. picture of a kid. You're going to get letters every now and then. You're going to have the at least the experience or perception that this is a real relationship with an individual child and that your sponsorship support is helping that individual child. In reality, there are some organizations where that is true and other organizations where it is um, difficult to verify. Uh, so mm-hmm. when people say, does sponsorship work? It's asking the wrong type of question or it's at least confused because there's a difference between um, does this sponsorship funded program work? And does that sponsorship funded program work? Mm -hmm. What matters is what is the child's experience? So ask the question, does sponsorship work from the perspective of the kid? And you Mm -hmm. will have night and day different answers because there will be kids that are sponsored in some organizations and you ask, you know, is it helping? How's it helping you? Those kind of questions. They will just look bewildered. They're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Why? Because Honestly, they had their photo taken and they're told to write letters now and then and they get nothing. 
Okay. Mm. There's actually nothing happening that they're aware of that's directly benefiting them or their family because the funds that are raised are being spent on a community development project. And how big is that community? It could be citywide. It could be that there's new water being piped in. It could be that there's electrification going on. And it's not to say that's not good work. It, it's probably good work. It's probably great community development work that's being funded. Right. However, the child's experience is totally uncoupled from it. And often the sponsor perceives they're helping that child when in fact that kid's not getting anything. Hmm. On the other hand, there are kids that are in sponsorship programs and you ask them, how is sponsorship benefiting you? And they will light up and they will tell you about their sponsor <laughs> and they will tell you about the Hope Center that they attend and they will tell you what they're learning there. And if you say, do you think other kids in the community would want to be part of this program? They would say, absolutely. And why? And you'll get all kinds of positive answers. So there was a study done a few years ago, um, about nine years ago now, uh, and it was published in an economics journal. It was an academic academic journal. But then there were um, other articles based on that academic article that were published in Christian uh, uh, publications like Christianity Today. And the title there was Does Sponsorship Work? And, and it's, mm -hmm. again, it's, it's not the right question. You have to ask, what is it that works to help develop the kid? And uh, the good news is that child-focused sponsorship programs, the programs where kids actually uh, participate in a program, they have contact hours, they spend time with child champions, they are known, they are individually loved, they um, are given opportunities. Those programs work hmm. unbelievably effective. And that data has been presented to the World Bank and to other global uh, development organizations it is rock solid and compelling. It lifts the eyebrows in those rooms. I mean, you got rooms full of skeptics and agnostics and people who think, you know, this Christian stuff, right? They have their skepticism and, and it has been shown to them and they just sit back and go, wow, that mm. is having a greater life impact. This was a, th these were amazing uh, studies, six different countries, thousands of participants, formerly sponsored children now graduated. Where are they in life? And their life mm. outcomes are clearly uh, benefiting because of the sponsorship experience. So does sponsorship work? Uh, it's just not the right question to ask. Does it work to raise money? Yes, it does. Uh, but that's not a very interesting question. Uh, the thing that matters is, does it work for the child? Will the child actually benefit in a way that transforms his or her life? The answer to that depends on the program that's being funded. And there are organizations like One Child and others that are focused on the child and we know based on studies and based on our own constant um, engagement with those kids and their families, it absolutely works. So when we hear about other organizations like this one that came out um, not too long ago in Christianity Today, the article is basically about an organization that was doing sponsorship and is looking at, you know, maybe we should leave the sponsorship model. Um, it's, I mean, fine, go, you know, you redesign your program however you want. But what we know <laughs> is sponsorship when it's child focused and provides those contact hours and is individualized definitely works. And that other programs, you know, they have to have their own metrics. What What is it that they assess to know that it's effective or working? And then there's a whole lot of other questions that are for the future. Um, we believe at One Child that we can gain new levels of relational engagement uh, and, a, and a stronger sponsor experience as well as a better child experience while gaining a lot more efficiency. Efficiency is about getting as much of that sponsored dollar through the pipe 
to the field where the child's participating in that program. And we want to get as much of that through as we can, but we do need some to go out and find the next sponsor and mm-hmm. to make sure that the sponsor has a great experience. Uh, thankfully, with technology and some of the things that are possible today, one child is excited about a future where we'll be able to do that program way more efficiently in a, in a much richer experience for, for everyone involved. So we've used the term child champions a number of times. You just mentioned it as well. So describe for us in greater detail, what do you mean when you say child champion? Yeah, One Child is a global community of child champions. And when we talk about that term, child champions, what we mean is a person who gives of themselves so the child can thrive. That might be giving of their time. It might be a volunteer. You know, maybe you're a basketball coach and you're helping kids in your community. Um, You're a child champion. Maybe you're a teacher and you give of yourself. It's not just about educating and curriculum. It's it's about responding to those students in your classroom when their dog dies Mm -hmm. and knowing how to give a hug Mm -hmm. and knowing how to be affirming and encouraging to children Mm -hmm. uh, on their journey. Maybe you're a youth pastor and you know what it's like. These kids are facing all kinds of mess in this world. And you're there to help them navigate all of that mess. So child champions, you know, all different walks of life. Um, you could be a pastor at a church and just your willingness to speak up and teach from scripture on God's heart for kids and how God sees kids. That's a way of being a child champion. You're giving of your influence. You're giving of that position of authority that he's given you to um, advocate on behalf of kids. So uh, one child is a global community of people just like that. From all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, they might be sponsors who are giving financially and giving of their prayers. They might be a social worker in Kenya who's helping a kid overcome trauma. Um, But that's who we are. We're a global community of child champions. That's so powerful. So a child champion is anyone who is committed to and fully working toward seeing children thrive. Um, But, you know, the idea is there and we all have, I think that if you're listening to this podcast, you know, people that are listening right now, they, they all want to see children thrive, but tangibly, uh, that has to, to have a framework around it and, and a place uh, for that to happen. And so we, we do that in our various countries that we, that we serve in, that we, that we partner with churches in. We do that through what's called a hope center. Uh, explain a little bit about what uh, Hope Center is and, and, and how those work. One child partners with local churches to create what we call Hope Centers. And a Hope Center is a place where children come regularly. You know, every week they're coming to participate in activities and do things together where they build friendships, where it's a safe place to play. They're not out in the streets. There's not the gang violence surrounding them. There's not the drugs and everything else. It's a safe and healthy environment for kids to be kids to play, to laugh, and to learn together. Hope Center is a place, probably the most important thing in the Hope Center is the child champion. There's a person there who knows that child by name and who knows what's going on in the home. A person building a trusting relationship with the kid where if the kid is struggling in some way, you know, uh, facing some challenges that might even be quite difficult personally, Um, that that's a person the child will feel safe to share that with. And then that person's trained in how do we respond? How do we help this children, uh, this particular child in this case? So a Hope Center really is um, an environment for kids to grow comprehensively, to grow in uh, in social-emotional development, if you will. It's it's self-esteem. It's learning to, to play well with others and character development, those things, to grow educationally. So there's often tutoring and support. Many of our um, local partners are actually schools, and so we support their school-based education, or at least augment that. 
They're fed meals, so they receive nutritional support. Also, um, that's where medical checkups will happen at the Hope Center. And wrapping around all of that is our commitment to Christ. And it's done in partnership with the local church so that these children are coming to know who Jesus is. They're coming to see the church as a place of hope, a place of life. And, uh, and we have seen many, many examples where the local church, because they are partnered with one child and they have a hope center, they've earned credibility in their community. And even non-believers, these are churches in Hindu or Buddhist or even Muslim contexts where that church might have a really tough go being accepted by the community. But because they are loving the kids in that community and even the, the children of parents from different backgrounds um, are grateful. They say, hey, you know. I don't know if about your beliefs, but I know that you're helping my my child. Right. And by helping my child, I'm I'm grateful that you're here. That's the kind of reputation we want the church to have around the world. We want to be seen as the kind of people who bring blessing into our communities. And One Child Partners to help churches do that. Why is the local church so important to what we do here at One Child? At One Child, we're on a mission to help kids thrive. Uh, that's that's a great word. You know, the, the idea of whole life well-being like that. John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and life abundantly flourishing life. So that's what we want for these kids. And honestly, it's the same thing we want for each other in life. Right. And what does that really mean? It's, it's not just um, doing well in one part of your life, like physical well-being. Obviously these kids need um, to be well-nourished and they need to be protected from disease and they need to have clean water and all those kinds of things for physical well-being. But they also need uh, great relationships, a healthy community, you know, friends to play with, a place where they can be safe. Um, and that's also part of thriving. And then there's, they need to grow educationally. They need to learn. It's cognitive development. It's staying curious about things. And then, you know, ultimately, when they grow up, being able to use that knowledge to gain a good job and provide for their families, all of that is part of thriving. But woven into every bit of that is this fundamental uh, reality that you matter because God says you matter. You are made mm -hmm. in the image of God. That's why you can have a better future and a hope and uh, a, a reason to really to live ultimately. So we want these kids to experience this thriving life. And we know that the foundation of that is to know who Jesus is. So when you ask me about why is the local church so important in holistic child development, it's because the local church is at the core of that spiritual formation of, of coming to know who God is as a loving father. It's also the local church that was commissioned by Jesus to be the good news in those communities, to be the agent of transformation, to be the gospel. And I'm saying be, not just declare because it's both, right? It's not just right. these teachings. It's not just go hear a sermon. It is to see the gospel lived out, the gospel with muscles in action as believers in that community live in alignment with what the spirit is doing in that community, that's the presence of God in that community. So when kids that are at risk, when kids that are being abused in their homes, when kids whose alcoholic uncle is taking the money from his mom, when kids are facing all of these hard realities, they have unmet basic needs, they're going to bed hungry, local pastors and, and the community of believers in that, in that place, they know. They see it and their hearts break. I have met so many local pastors. I don't have to tell them how important it is to reach kids at risk. They already know what mm -hmm. they ask is how can, how can I do that? It is messy. It is hard. There's so many broken realities in those homes. Sometimes it's intimidating. There's gangs in the streets. 
it is hard. And so the way one child helps to reach those kids is by strengthening the capacities of those local churches so that they can engage in those kids' lives and, and take those relationships. Because that's the, that's the thing the church brings is they are close to those families and to those kids. They know their communities. They know those realities. They're way better at figuring out how to help those kids thrive than somebody sitting in Colorado. Right. That mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. it is localized, contextualized solutions rooted in the love that that local community of believers has for kids at risk in their communities. That is the key to then saying, how do we help this child individualize? What are the unique threats? What are the unique possibilities, the potential of this child? What's she struggling with? Does she need help with nutrition? And so what sponsorship does is it is allows us to have the resources to partner with that local church, strengthen their capacities and provide that individualized care uh, so that each kid can experience that John 10, 10 life. Okay, so that addresses why the local church is so important in our partner countries where the children are being directly served. But why does one child choose to partner through the local church here in the U.S.? to facilitate that work going on in our partner countries. We believe at one child that the local church is the, um, is the plan that God had to advance his kingdom, his good work, his, his work of reconciliation, his work of restoration um, and, and the proclamation of the good news. That, that was his plan. And it was local communities, the ecclesia, believers gathered together, a community of disciples making disciples of each other and of those around them by, by exemplifying uh, Christ-like life, um, word and deed. And so when we partner with local churches overseas, strengthening their capacity to reach kids at risk in their community, um, that's not just a strategy. That's a... Um, that's really tied to a theology. It's, it's how we see the role of the local church. We have to have that same perspective of the local church everywhere. It's not different in Kenya from the United States or Canada or Switzerland. The local gathering of believers who are living life together, seeking to, to honor uh, what God has called them to be in that community that's equally true in Des Moines, right? Or San Francisco. And so our, our approach to partnership sees the bride of Christ equally in every culture. Uh, and sometimes it's warts and all, you know, let's be honest. Sometimes that's a, that's a, a challenge, but that is the plan that God had for advancing his purposes in the world. And, uh, our role as a para church to come alongside of the church and to strengthen the church for her, uh, commission really um, is equally true everywhere in the world. So that's why um, we partner with churches in the United States. Uh, just as we contextualize um, our partnership in Uganda or Kenya or the Philippines, we customize our partnership here in the United States because we believe that um, as we um, partner well, it's got to be mutual. It's got to honor the vision of our partnering churches. It's got to uh, be a partnership that is strengthening and that is um, it's it's not instrumentalizing, if you will. It's not mm. turning that partner into some kind of franchisee or uh, a marketing channel or any of that. That is 
Um, that is a transactional and kind of uh, very unhealthy, very business rooted way of thinking about things. Right. We believe in connecting the global body of Christ, and we believe that each local expression, each ecclesia, is a unique manifestation of what God is doing in that community. And so, yeah, the same uh, the same beliefs, really. Um, I said theology. I don't know if it's that, <laughs> uh, but it is it is a set of beliefs that said, "Hey, this is how we're going to partner." Uh, when we're in a low income community somewhere overseas uh, to help reach kids at risk. And honestly, it's the same type of um, mindset that we bring to our partnership here in the U S. So you spent a lot of years uh, working in, in child development and working to bring hope to hard places, but that's not what things were like uh, originally for you. I mean, you were a, a very successful doctor and medical researcher and you had, you know, what the world would look at as tremendous success. And then something shifted, something changed and you committed your life to being a part of bringing hope to hard places and seeing children's lives transformed um, in tangible ways as well as eternal ways. What what was the shift? What uh, tell the story of of how that happened? When God called me to uh, serve kids at risk around the world, uh, I left a career that was quite successful in medicine. And to be honest, I I don't know if I was a very emotionally connected person. I mean, I didn't cry hardly for anything and kind of more leaning into that rational reason, argue world in my brain. And so for God to call me out of that and into a place where I just had this nonstop onslaught of experiences, I traveled constantly. I found myself in remote villages sitting on dirt floors. I found myself um, in very, very hard places around the world with children who were abused or abandoned or who were suffering from poverty related causes. I led this HIV AIDS initiative and have, have seen far too many kids die um, from, from circumstances that just shouldn't exist on this planet. And it overwhelmed me and I started crying a lot. I mean, God just <laughs> totally ripped my heart up and, and in a good way. Right. And then uh, I was probably seven years into it when I stopped crying. And that was hard too, because I realized I'm becoming numb. Um, mm -hmm. Something in me is is no longer connecting with the reality of this grief, and I didn't want to lose that. But I also couldn't fake it. Um, so I went through a season of a few years of feeling this numbness and uh, honestly praying, God, don't let it happen. Keep my um, grief real because I believe that grief is a gift. When you encounter children suffering and you feel that, it tells you that you're close to the heart of God. And if you don't feel that, your heart's cold. So I wanted to feel what I believe God feels over this pain and that gift of, of connecting and those tears are there. And there is one particular child who, I don't know, I guess it was just this moment that anchored it all together. Um, her name was Jacqueline uh, and this was in Tanzania in the early days of fighting HIV AIDS. And uh, I had been trying to negotiate with local health service providers, doctors and clinics and hospitals to provide antiretroviral therapy for kids who are HIV positive. And it was very difficult because the government had up until very recently, right prior to that, prohibited um, these particular medicines from being prescribed or even being imported. But I met with this guy, his name was Dr. Show, and he was very stoic, kind of like me. You know, he wouldn't make a single <laughs> muscle move in his face as I told him about these kids and their HIV positive and, you know, the suffering and everything. 
And I really was just, I was like, oh man, it's another one of those, this isn't going anywhere. Right. Uh, I, I didn't know what to do. And then at the end of probably 30 minutes of trying to persuade Dr. Show that the Celiana Lutheran Clinic there in Arusha ought to be able to provide antiretroviral care for, we had 212 kids that we knew were HIV positive. Wow. He just leaned forward and he said, last week, the government gave me 250 slots to treat people with HIV. I have those therapies and those kids are now on the list. Wow. It was like this wow. feeling of miracle or yeah. in God's timing. Wow. It was having just <laughs> left that visit that I went mm -hmm. and met one of those kids, Jacqueline, um, who was living with her grandmother, never knew her father. Mom had passed away with HIV. And so for Jacqueline, this 12-year-old little girl, to watch her own mother suffer in that way, AIDS is not quick. Mm. AIDS is slow and hard and brutal. And for a child to watch their mom break out in sores and cough through the night mm. and then suffer from diarrhea and for that child to be the one who cleans up after her own mom and who goes out into the marketplace to try to find some beans for dinner mm. or get some charcoal or whatever. And so, uh, Jacqueline went through all of that experience only later to be told that she has the sickness. Oh, goodness. And then she began to wither away and her grandmother didn't know what to do. Grandmother had never seen anybody recover from this. The sickness back then was the end of life. And for me, when I visited Jacqueline, I did it with so much hope and I saw her. Yes, she was at the late stages of AIDS, but I knew the next day we're going to get her to the clinic and we're going to get her started on these therapies, which I knew would work, right. um, you know, not every time, but almost all the time. They, they're effective at knocking out the HIV and restoring near normal health. And so I prayed for her, her you know, Lord, let's, let's hear her song. Mm. Let's hear what you put in her. What, what is it that you created when you created her? And I hopped on a plane as she was heading off to the clinic and I got home and I got this message from um, a doctor who was on the team with us there um, that Jacqueline had died. Oh my goodness. And that was, uh, that was really hard yeah. because I felt like I was too late. And two years went by and I just you know, kept pressing on, kept trying to do what I could for the kids that were still uh, with us. And somehow I wound up back in this village in Arusha in Tanzania and we were doing home visits. And, you know, at that time we had 30,000 children in our program in that country alone. Wow. There's this girl and she's bouncing this pink balloon up into the air and just trying to keep it in the air. And then she bounces it over toward me. And so I bounced the balloon back over to her and we're playing this game mm -hmm. and she's smiling. And it was just this really joyful, special kind of moment. I picked it up and I handed it to her. And when she, when I gave it to her, she said, thank you. Wow. And the way she said it or something about how she looked in my eyes or something in that moment, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I got all these goosebumps and there was this just massive significance that I experienced. And so a few minutes later, there was a woman standing nearby and I said, tell me about this girl. And she said, um, well, that little girl um, is living with her grandmother. Um, her... Uh, father was never around. Her mother passed away. Uh, and she's actually living with the sickness. And I said, and how old is she? She's 12. And as I asked more, I came to learn that this little girl, three years earlier, was one of the kids on that same list. Wow. And that she was alive. And I got to have that moment with her. Yeah. Because 
the therapy worked and she was cared for. And then I asked this woman, what's her name? And she said, her name is Jacqueline. Wow. So even the same name. And I think, I think what God showed me in that moment is you don't see everything that I'm doing and you can't control every outcome. But if you are faithful to do what I've called you to do, I'll work the miracles through that faithfulness. Mm -hmm. There have been so many kids, uh, kids whose journeys I only kind of briefly come across. I only see this little window, but God knows the entire story of that child's life. Absolutely. And he's working a long-term redemptive plan, no matter how hard the start, no matter the brokenness they've gone through, that he would take them on that redemptive journey and, and create beauty into their life. And I actually think the same is true for you and I and for any of us. Yeah. We all have to look at our journey Yes, it's a broken world. Yes, there's sin. Some of it we create for ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but God's a redeemer. And he rescues that and he and he turns even that which was maybe even intended for evil, he turns it for good. One of the boldest uh statements that I've ever heard when it comes to um extreme poverty is that uh it can end uh within this generation and that statement came from your book. Uh, what do you say to the people that honestly feel like that's just a sensational claim that um, is beyond um, being a reality? You know, it's been over 10 years uh, that I have been sharing with leaders around the world, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, that it is possible to bring an end to extreme global poverty. And not just someday, but in our day, in my generation, specifically by the year 2035. And I have say, uh, he's so many skeptics, right. you know, so many people look at me like, oh, what? <laughs> have you been out there? Are you kidding? Why sure. do, why, why do people perceive that this is impossible? And so mm-hmm. we actually funded a study by the Barna Research Group to survey, um, Americans. Do you believe it's possible? And, uh, not just that, but do you think extreme poverty has gotten, uh, worse or better or stayed about the same since, um, I think the reference date was 1990. And then we similar question was, do you think that the number of children dying from poverty related causes has gone up or down or stayed about the same since 1990? Both of those questions, as well as others show that about 70% of Americans think things are getting worse. The extreme poverty is getting worse. The child survival rates are getting worse. About uh, 20% believe it's about the same and only 10% or less think it's getting better. The data are overwhelmingly clear and they're coming from the most reliable data sources and they have been there for years and years. The answer is things are getting better and radically better and have been consistently getting better since 1990. Just since 1981, uh, we've, we've cut that poverty rate by 75%. It's not just a little change. In 1981, half the planet lived in extreme poverty. Half the planet living on less than a dollar a day. Mm. So that reference point is a World Bank purchasing power dollar. It means uh, adjust it for inflation, turn it into Kenya shillings. It's the same thing. How much can you buy in terms of rice or cooking oil or whatever? So there's this economic base standard that says this is what extreme poverty looks like. It's today, it would be a dollar ninety per day. You as an American living in your community, go out and wow. try to live on that. Wow. That's extreme poverty. Mm. In a short way of understanding that uh, poverty line, it is even if you spent all of your income on nutrition, you would still not have enough to meet the basic caloric intake needs of an adult male. 
life without your basic needs met. In 1981, half of the planet lived in that condition. Wow. By the 1990s, late 1990s, that had been cut to 26%. Mm, wow. And then when we rounded the corner into 2010, we broke below the 10% barrier. Wow. Wow. So now we're running at close to 8%. And COVID is the first time in the last 30 years that we've actually seen extreme poverty increasing again. And not because of the virus itself, but because of all of the policies, the economic shutdowns, and all of the things that we've kind of done to ourselves in a way of trying to control the virus. So extreme poverty is on its way to the history books. Those of us who've been involved in this ought to learn how to celebrate that. Right. And I am. And I want to challenge <laughs> leaders to believe that it's possible that children don't need to die of preventable causes, that people don't need to live without their basic needs met. We've made stunning progress, and our generation should be the one asking, how do we finish the job? We started this episode by asking the question, what if? What if churches had a way of being a part of ending the cycle of poverty in communities around the world? What if they could bring generational change in villages that have seen nothing but generational curses? What if churches could be a part of ending extreme poverty in our lifetime by bringing hope to hard places one child at a time? I hope that hearing Dr. Scott for the past half hour has given you hope that these dreams are becoming reality. Over the next six episodes, we're going to have conversations with pastors and leaders in churches who are actively participating in this movement. These child champions are serving children in poverty so they can discover hope and reach their God-given potential. And the amazing twist in this story is that as these churches are bringing hope to hard places around the world, their own churches and their own lives are also being transformed in the process. Thank you for listening uh, to the Missions Pastor Podcast. This show is presented by One Child. We are a global community of child champions that serves children in poverty so that they can discover hope and reach their God-given potential. To learn more about how your church can partner with One Child to bring hope to hard places, go to onechild.org.